Thank you, Jenny. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn with me to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation in the New Testament. Uh, Revelation chapter 19, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9. If, if you have a pew Bible with you, it's page 1,934. Well, as you've probably picked up by now, this is uh, Advent. This is the season of Advent. It's a season of waiting. It's called that because for centuries, God's people were waiting on the birth of their Messiah, what we now call the first Christmas or the first Advent. When that happened, Jesus of Nazareth was was born. He grew up. He lived. He died. Uh, He rose from the dead. And before he ascended, he told his followers that he would return, that there would be a second advent. Uh, By the time that this book we're looking at was written, Jesus' followers were now suffering under harsh opposition from both political and from religious groups. And once again, they're waiting. What we see in Revelation 19 is a a picture of what its original readers were waiting for as those that were called to faithful endurance in the midst of of severe opposition. We see here a picture of where God is actually taking history, a picture of of what they were waiting for, but also a picture of what it would take to get there. As we're going to see, it's also what we're waiting for today. It's here in Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah. For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. Well, in in case you haven't noticed lately, by all the ads for Black Friday sales, uh, the music in the stores that your radio stations, suddenly half of them are Christmas music stations, and the decorations that are going up, Christmas is coming. And when waiting for Christmas, we know that something is coming, but often only after something else comes first. For example, for the Black Friday shopper. Before presents are under the tree, you know you've got to research the best deals, take a self-defense course, and get fitted for body armor so when you storm those doors at 5 a.m., you can straight arm and dive and tackle and beat everyone else to that half-price 60-inch 4K TV that's only available for the first 60 seconds. If you're a student, but you know before Christmas, something else has to come first. 
final projects, everything that you've been assigned for the last three months due at the same time, uh, cramming to do, finals to be taken before returning home. If you're a child, you know that before Christmas morning comes and you get to open up all those presents, somehow you have to first fall asleep Christmas Eve, which as a child may be the hardest thing that you do all year. If you're a parent or a grandparent, you know before Christmas comes, there's cleaning to do, there's preparing of the guest rooms, there's there's cooking the meal before loved ones finally arrive. I know some of you in this room are are looking past Christmas because you're engaged, you're you're waiting for a wedding, and as you've learned by now, something else has to come first. A lot of things have to come first. There's all the planning, invitations to be sent, dresses to be chosen, suits and tuxedos to be fitted, venues and vendors to be selected, and maybe most importantly, the selection of a good wedding DJ. (laughs) And then waiting, waiting for the day to come. Those who first read the book of Revelation were also waiting. Their experience of it probably felt like that famous line from the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. It probably felt like it was always winter, but never Christmas. So you've heard in previous weeks, the original readers, the Christians from the first century, were suffering under a forceful persecution, like millions of Christians do in many parts of the world today, and they're waiting, not just to hear what God says about their suffering, but to hear what God's going to do about it. What they needed to see, what needed to happen before Christ's church before what they were waiting for finally arrived. What needed to happen? In Revelation 19, Jesus answers that question by showing us three things. A prostitute, a bride, and an invitation. First, the prostitute. Who who is she? In verse 2, we hear that that the great prostitute is the one uh, that they're speaking of, but it's not the first time that she's been mentioned. In fact, the chapter before, we learned that she has a name. Babylon the Great. It's actually an Old Testament reference to the nation of Babylon who had oppressed and caused suffering for God's people uh, for years. And yet in the chapters right before this, she's not spoken of as as a a past reality, but as a present uh, reality, as something that's alive and well today. And here she stands as a representative as the cause of all of the sufferings for God's people. What's she done? What has she done? Why? Why speak of her? Well, in verse 2, we read that she has corrupted the earth. Uh, You see, in in the chapter before this, it says that even the kings of the earth uh, had been seduced by her by appealing to greed and to their own self-interest. In fact, entire nations, it says, uh, were deceived by the promises of her wealth. And in her economy, everything has a price, even the bodies and the souls of people who become treated like a commodity. And the problem actually runs deeper than we'd like to think. Even today, how often do you see people getting in the way of what someone else really wants, and as a result, they become collateral damage, a casualty of someone else's relentless pursuit of of something else? See, it's because of her great promises to those who trust in her that they're willing to do anything in service for her no matter who gets hurt in the way. And yet when those who trust in her see her fall, it says that they will weep. And yet by that time, 
she herself has already caused a multitude to weep. Because we see in verse 2, it also says that the blood of God's servants is on her hands. Back in chapter 17, in verse 6, it says that she has become drunk with the blood of the saints and with the martyrs, those who are witnesses to Jesus. Lives that were taken only because of their profession that Jesus is Lord. You see, back at the time when this was likely written, underneath the Roman emperor Domitian, someone who demanded to be worshipped as a god, persecution would fall on any who would refuse to do so. Another emperor from around that time, Nero, ended up blaming uh, Christians for the great fire of Rome, and as a result, later on, had many burned alive. He, uh, he became the one who would martyr apostles like, uh, like Peter. Down. And they would even eventually be fed to wild beasts as entertainment in the Roman Colosseum. Hmm. Can you hear me? Maybe. Hey, there we go. That's what I did. Props to the sound man for figuring me out. Thank you. Uh, under, these, uh, under these emperors, uh, to follow Jesus meant you might be sought into. You might be crucified, or if you didn't feel worthy to die the same way as your Messiah, you might be crucified upside down. Many would eventually be fed to wild beasts as entertainment for those in the Roman Colosseum. And yet behind all of this lies Babylon, the great prostitute, the cause of the suffering of God's people. The question is, what would become of her? Well, we see it described here as, in a word, judgment. In verse 2, it says that she's condemned. It says that her bloodshed is avenged. And why? Because God's judgments are true and are just. It's been said that the opposite of love is, is hate. But hate's final form is indifference. And if that's so, it would be unthinkable that a God of love could actually be indifferent to what destroys people made in his image It can also be hard maybe to imagine a just and true judgment when so often what we see from our world and what we see from each other's falls far short of that, that high standard. You see, we judge on mere appearances far too often because really that's all that we can see. We think that we can see the heart. We think we can see the inner motives, but we actually can't. Only God actually sees the heart. His judgments aren't tainted by misinformation or, or compromised by ulterior motives. See, if he is loving and just, he must act in judgment on evil in our world. It was uh, Miroslav Volf, the scholar, who put it this way. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. And the final end is what's actually pictured here in this passage. You see, in verse 3 it says, Smoke from her goes up forever." And ever. You see, to all the people at that time, there would be no doubt what had happened. Her shame would be exposed. In a word, what they and we are waiting for ultimately in the midst of suffering and injustice is actually God's judgment for the uprooting of the cause of our sorrows. And as we see in this passage, what follows is is a reason to celebrate. You see, throughout the New Testament, we see this word from the Old Testament, from the Psalms, hallelujah, used only four times in the whole New Testament, and every single time is in this passage. In verses 1 and 3, it says, a great multitude in heaven are shouting hallelujah 
Praise the Lord. In verse 4, we see the four living creatures and the 24 elders representing all of God's creation and all of God's people crying out together, Amen, Hallelujah. And in verse 6, a great multitude is shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. God's judgment of evil is a reminder that he reigns, that he is the one that's on the throne. God's judgment is celebrated because he purges the world of all that harms not only his world, but also his people. The voice from the throne calls people to worship because God has brought salvation to his people. And now that God's judgment has come, what the people have been waiting for has finally arrived. And so in verse 7, the prostitute, Babylon the Great, gives way to the bride. There's going to be a wedding. And the contrast couldn't be clearer. You see, just two verses before this chapter, it says of Babylon that the voice of the bride and the groom will be heard in you no more. In contrast, we now hear a multitude of voices celebrating a bride and a bridegroom saying, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. Because this isn't just any wedding. In verse 7, it says, it's the wedding of the Lamb. It's that image that they would use in Revelation to describe Jesus Christ himself, the one that John the Baptist called the Lamb of God. He is the groom. It's, it's his wedding. It's the wedding of the Lamb who is also the King. And in verse 9 it says that there's going to be a feast. It's going to be a royal wedding feast. And what all of them have been waiting for is the arrival, is the advent of the bridegroom who is also the king. It's a picture of the second coming of Jesus, a royal wedding feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb. Now I know in this room, having just had Thanksgiving, we all know a thing or two about a feast. And even today, we know a thing or two about a royal wedding. It was actually in 2011 that over, I don't know how many hundreds of millions of people, it was a lot, tuned in to watch live, no matter what their time zone was, the royal wedding. People in here got up at oh dark 30 to watch this. The royal wedding of Prince William and his bride, Kate Middleton. But here in Revelation 19, in this royal wedding, who's the bride? See, in our scripture reading, Hosea, we we heard God's people described as the betrothed of God. And in the New Testament, in in 2 Corinthians, Paul describes the church as the betrothed of Christ. It's, It's something that the original audience would have known exactly what it meant and exactly what that meant for them. You see, in Jewish wedding customs, a betrothal was was a lot like an engagement, but but even more so. You see, it was legally binding, so much so that only a divorce could end it. The one betrothed to the bride was already, the betrothed to the bridegroom was actually already called the bride. Uh, When Jesus said to his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you, he was borrowing the language of betrothal, where a bridegroom would go away and, and make preparations in his father's house so that when he returns for the wedding, there would be a place ready so he could welcome the bride into it. Here's what it all means. Jesus is the bridegroom, and his betrothed, his bride is is his church. It's his people. What the church has been waiting for ultimately is his return, the time of the wedding. The hope of the church is ultimately Jesus uniting himself with his people. But before the long-awaited celebration, before the wedding, something had to come first. Judgment had to come. The enemy of the bride had to be defeated. 
and the bride had to be made ready. What that all brings us to is the invitation. Verse 9, it says, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's where we want to be. But the fact that it's an invitation, blessed are those who are invited, implies that not everyone will be there. How do we know if we're invited? How do we know if we've been made ready? Just chapters before this in Revelation 17, it says that those who will be with the Lamb, who will be with Jesus in the end, it says, are called and chosen and faithful. Have we been faithful? How faithful? What's the standard of faithfulness? Well, here the comparison is actually between a bride and a bridegroom, and that should be our first clue. You see, I've been a part of a few weddings now, and and, uh, of all the weddings that I've been to, I've never heard this in the vows. I love you, and I promise to cherish you and be faithful to you 51% of the time. Better than average, most of the time, honey, it'll be you. No bride gets excited, no groom gets excited about a vow of even 90% faithfulness. Nothing less than 100% is going to cut it. And yet we as his bride in many ways have been unfaithful. Our connection with Babylon the prostitute might be stronger than we want to admit. You see, when God confronts his people through the prophet Jeremiah about the reality of their sin, about the reality of their crimes against God, he doesn't put it in legal terms. He actually puts it in relational terms, in the language of adultery. He says, but like one unfaithful to their lover, even so have you been faithless to me. In Ezekiel chapter 6, God says of his people's sin, how I have been grieved by their adulterous hearts, which have turned away from me, and by their eyes, which have lusted after their idols, after alternative gods. He goes on to say, you adulterous wife, You prefer strangers to your own husband. What it shows us is that sin is more than simply breaking God's rules. It's breaking God's heart. It's it's betraying a lover. It's declaring in our thoughts and our words and our deeds that we actually prefer another to him. If it grieves the lover of our souls in the process of pursuing that other love, we realize it's a price that we're far too often willing to pay. You look at Jesus, what he calls the greatest commandment, and he puts it in relational terms. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength. I haven't done that for five minutes in my life. And he calls that the greatest commandment. He says to have no other gods uh, before me. And yet I realize even in my own life, I'm constantly letting anything else rule over me. Tell me what my identity is. Find myself pursuing it no matter what the cost to myself and others. We have been far less than 100% faithful, and yet only 100% faithfulness will do. In many ways, we've been seduced by the prostitute ourselves, but in many ways, we've also been her. In that scripture reading that, that Jenny read for us from Hosea, Hosea marries a prostitute as an illustration of God's relationship with his people to reveal the depths of his people's sin to them. You see, as much as Christ's church longs for justice and longs for the cleansing power of God's final judgment, we realize the truth 
of the sermon reflection you saw on the wall earlier, the words of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who said, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being, even our own. Some of you might remember in, in, 1990, in 1988, a televangelist and former prosperity uh, preacher Jim Baker was found guilty of 24 counts of fraud and conspiracy and sentenced to 45 years in prison. This came just a year after the revelation of his own fidelity with a former church secretary who had received a six-figure payoff, which came from ministry donations so that she would keep silent about what happened between them. The group Baker had once been a part of uh, had taught that the harlot described here in Revelation what was this other group, those people out there. But later, after his conviction, in an interview with Christianity Today, Baker would later say, that was just being escapist. We wanted to blame somebody else and never look at ourselves. Today he identifies Babylon and her allures as the very things that he was seduced by the very things that led him to do so much harm to so many people. By the time he wrote the book simply titled, I Was Wrong, he'd begun to see the truth that the greatest problem facing God's people isn't simply something out there, but actually something in here. Revelation tells us that while on the day of the wedding, the wedding of the Lamb, the day of Jesus' wedding, many will celebrate, but those who are seduced by the prostitute will weep. So what will become of us? What will become of Jesus' bride? Let me tell you a story. Um, uh, about a decade ago, I started working as a wedding DJ. And so when I did, I, I talked to my other coworkers, and I found out about all these crazy stories about stuff that happened at other wedding receptions. Some mostly true, some totally fabricated. But of all the stories, none of them could top this one. It was right before the best man's toast at the wedding reception when the groom, by everyone's surprise, took the microphone and says, I, I have something I want to say. He started by thanking everybody for their attendance, thanking the parents of the bride uh, for paying for this lavish feast they were about to enjoy, and thanked everybody for the guests uh, and the cards and the gifts that they brought. But then he says that, well, actually, I have a gift for you, for all of you. It's actually in an envelope taped to the bottom of your chair. Some people are probably thinking, cash money. And so what he did is uh, he says, now what I want you all to do is take the envelope from your chair and open the seal, but, but don't, oh, don't take it out, the contents all together. We're going to count to three, and then you're going to all see what the surprise is. My gift to you all. One, two, three. When they took out the contents of the envelope, they were indeed surprised to find a, a photograph uh, together, an eight by ten of the bride and the best man. A photo taken by a private investigator. It was proof of his bride's infidelity. The groom offered a few choice words to his bride, um, including the word divorce, and then he left. See, he had known of her unfaithfulness for a while, but by waiting until after all of her friends and family had gathered at the reception, the one that her parents had already paid for, he went to great lengths to maximize her experience of shame 
And yet, as Jesus betrothed, it's actually because of our spiritual adultery that he too has grounds for divorce. He too knows our shame, but friends, Jesus is a very different type of groom. One who went to great lengths not to expose our shame, but to cover our shame. It says in verse 8, Jesus gives his bride fine linen to wear, described as bright and clean. It's a contrast to how his bride knows that she's fouled and defiled herself and how we often feel in light of our own weaknesses, our own failings, our own sin and shame. You see, her bright and clean appearance wasn't something that she purchased. It wasn't something that she earned, but it says it was given to her. You see, what makes Jesus' bride ready is that she has put on the wedding clothes given to her by her bridegroom. She is now finally clothed. Her shame is covered. She is clean because of what's been given to her by another. You see, the very ability to get ready, as Kevin DeYoung puts it, is a gift from her groom. And what she's wearing is described in verse 8 as the righteous acts of the saints. And yet, as she knows, all of it is a gift. Even her own gown of righteous deeds is her groom's gift of grace. When the prophet Isaiah, when Isaiah the prophet was shown this truth, he responded looking forward by saying this, My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed my garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. You see, to those who have been seduced by Babylon, to those who have become like her, Jesus doesn't simply show us something better. He offers to make us something better, to make us his bride. There's going to be a wedding. Jesus is going to throw a party like this world has never seen. Today, an average wedding And the party that follows it costs about $20,000, not including DJ tip. But for Jesus, his wedding would cost far more than that. You see, in the beginning of the scriptures, in the Garden of Eden, we see the way humanity was made to live life in our relationship with God and each other. It says that, that the first humans were naked and unashamed, and then once sin entered the world, once people started to live as their own God, as their own Savior, turned away from God as their source of life. When sin first entered the world and guilt and shame and fear appeared and hiding and blaming and covering occurred, we see Adam and Eve trying to cover their shame with fig leaves. God, seeing that, would provide something better. Before Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden, they would then be covered by animal skins. But what covered their shame by its very nature would cost the life of another. It was a picture. It was a foreshadowing of how Jesus would cover our shame. You see, millennia later in another garden, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus would pray this prayer, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, and yet not my will, but that yours be done. You see, the cup that he was speaking of was this Old Testament symbol of the wrath of God for sin. You see, on that cross, Jesus would take upon himself the full contents of that cup, the wrath of God for the sins of all of those who would trust in him. 
And as he endured the cross and the shame that it came with it, he would cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The only one who had been 100% faithful, why have you forsaken me? See, on the cross, God forsook Jesus so he wouldn't have to forsake us. Jesus took upon himself what our sin and shame deserved. We get the righteous standing that he deserved if our faith is in him so that our shame could be covered with his righteousness, so that we could be made his bride, so that we could be changed. A while back, Reader's Digest featured a story uh, about a guy named Johnny Lingo. It goes like this. My trip to the Kinawata Island in the Pacific was a memorable one. Although the island was beautiful and I had an enjoyable time, the thing I remember most about my trip was the fact Johnny Lingo gave eight cows for his wife. Johnny Lingo was known throughout the islands for his skills, for his intelligence, and his savvy. If you hire him as a guide, he will show you the best fishing spots and the best places to get pearls. Johnny is also one of the sharpest traders in the islands. He can get you the best possible deals. The people of Kiniwata all speak highly of Johnny Lingo. Yet when they speak of him, they always smile just a little mockingly. A couple days after my arrival at Kinawata, I went to the manager of the guest house to see who he thought would be a good fishing guide. Johnny Lingo, said the manager. He's the best around. When you go shopping, let him do the bargaining. Johnny knows how to make a deal. Johnny Lingo, hooted a boy, who rocked back and forth with laughter as he said, yeah, Johnny can make a deal all right going on, I, I asked. Everyone uh, that I talk to tells me, get in touch with Johnny Lingo, and then they start laughing. Like, what's the joke? Someone let me in on the joke. Oh, the people like to laugh, the manager shrugged. Johnny's the brightest and strongest young man on the island. He's also the richest for his age. But, I protested, if he's all you say he is, why does everyone laugh at him behind his back? Well, there is this one thing. Five months ago at festival time, Johnny came to Kinawata and found himself a wife. He gave her father eight cows. I knew enough about island customs to be impressed. You see, as the tradition goes, a dowry of two or three cows were needed to, to marry a fair wife. And four or five cows, a very nice wife. Wow, I said, eight cows? Uh, she must have beauty that takes your breath away. She's not ugly, he conceded with a smile, but calling her plain would definitely be a compliment. Uh, Sam Carew, her father, was afraid he wouldn't be able to marry her off. Instead of being stuck with her, he got eight cows for her. Isn't that extraordinary? That price has never been paid before. Yet you call Johnny's wife plain. I said it would be a compliment to call her plain. She was skinny, and she walked with her shoulders hunched and her head ducked, and she was scared of her own shadow. That's why the villagers grin when they talk about Johnny. They get satisfaction from the fact that the sharpest trader in the islands was bested by dull old Sam Carew. I wanted fish and pearls, so the next afternoon I went to the island of Nurabandi. As I asked for directions to Johnny's house, I noticed Johnny's neighbors also seemed to be amused by the mention of his name. When I met a slim, serious young man, I could see the immediately why everyone 
respected his skills. It was Johnny Lingo. However, this only reinforced my confusion over, the, over this matter, over this man. We sat in his house. He asked me, you come here from Kinewada? Uh, yes. They speak of me on that island? Yes, they say that you can provide me anything I need. They say you're intelligent, resourceful, and, and the sharpest trader in the islands. He smiled gently. My wife is from Kinawata. Yes, I know. They speak of her. A little. What do they say? Well, just... The question caught me off balance. They told me that you were married at festival time. Nothing more? The curve of his eyebrows told me that he knew there had to be more. Well, they also say the marriage settlement was eight cows. I paused. They wonder why. They ask that. His eyes started to light with pleasure. Everyone in Kinawata knows about the eight cows? I nodded. And in Norabandi, everyone knows it too? His chest expanded with satisfaction, always and forever. When they speak of marriage settlements, it will be remembered that Johnny Lingo paid eight cows for the hand of Sarita. So that's the answer, I thought. Vanity. Just then, Sarita entered the room to place flowers on the table. She stood still for a moment to smile at her husband and then left. She was the most beautiful woman I had ever seen. The lift of her shoulders, the tilt of her shin, the, the chin, the, the sparkle in her eyes all spelled self-confidence and pride. Not, not an arrogant or haughty pride, but a confident inner beauty that radiated in her every movement. I turned back to Johnny and found him looking at me, looking at her. You admire her? He murmured. She, she, she's gorgeous. Obviously, this is not the one everyone is talking about uh, on uh, Kinawata. This can't be the Sarita from Kinawata. There's only one Sarita. Perhaps she doesn't look the way that you expected. She doesn't. I heard that she was homely. Uh, they all make fun of you because you let yourself be cheated by Sam Carew. You think eight cows was too many? No, 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 but... But how can she be so different from the way they described her? Johnny said, Think about how it must make a girl feel to know that her husband paid a very low dowry for her. It must be insulting to her to know that he places such little value on her. Think about how she must feel when other women boast about the high dowries that their husbands paid. It must be embarrassing for her. I would not let this happen to my Sarita. So you paid eight cows just to make your wife happy? Well, of course I want Sarita to be happy, but, but there's more to it than that. You say she is different from what you expected. This is true. Many things can change a person. There are things that happen on the inside and things that happen on the outside. However, the thing that, makes, that matters the most is how she views herself. In Kinawata, Sarita believed that she was worth nothing as a result, that's the value she projected. That's the beauty she showed. Now she knows she is worth more than any other woman in the islands. It shows, doesn't it? Well, well then you, you wanted... I wanted to marry Sarita. She is the only woman I love. But I was close to understanding. But, he finished softly, I wanted 
and ate cow wife. Friends, if your faith is in Jesus, he paid a far greater price for you to be his bride, the price of his own life. You see, rather than exposing our shame, he took our shame upon himself on the cross so that he could cover us with his own glory and righteousness. He didn't do it because we were already lovely. He did it because that's what makes us truly lovely, clothing us with his own righteousness and his own glory that it might leave us forever changed. As Ray Cortez put it, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, you're not just invited to the wedding, you have to be there. After all, it's your wedding. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to you in many ways, knowing our own guilt, knowing our own shame, knowing our own need. Father, we realize that in many ways we've been seduced by Babylon. We, many ways we've been like her. And yet you offer to make us clean, to make us new, to make us your beautiful bride, that we might walk in faithfulness and righteousness, but only by your grace. Father, remind us of that, even as you invite us to this table this morning. Amen.